Good morning, and welcome to the Intelligence Espresso from the Security Distillery. Each week, we aim to distill world affairs in the field of security and intelligence to a bite-sized and, hopefully, entertaining morning briefing. Joined by my colleagues here in Trento, I'm Anya McCrimmon, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the latest developments in the DRC, the election in Turkey, and the indictment of Donald Trump. But first... On Friday, the 31st of March, it was announced that Britain will be joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, otherwise known as the CPTPP. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is a free trade agreement between Australia, Brunei, Canada, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore and Vietnam. Britain will become the 12th member and the first state to join the partnership since its creation in 2018. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is one of the world's largest free trade agreements with a combined GDP of £11 trillion. After Britain joins, the partnership's GDP would rise to £12 billion, according to data from the World Bank. It is expected that Britain's accession to the Trans-Pacific Partnership will be finalised in July. The agreement, which the UK government is calling its biggest trade deal since Brexit, is estimated to boost the UK's economic output by less than 0.1% over approximately 15 years, and some may now be asking themselves if joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a substitute for the European Union. The answer to this is no. The EU still remains the UK's largest trading partner. However, some experts argue that joining the Trans-Pacific Agreement could help offset any potential negative impacts from the UK's departure from the EU. They contend that joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership will provide the UK with greater access to the fast-growing markets in the Asia-Pacific region. This could lead to increased foreign investment and boost trade as it does not have a single market which requires regulatory harmonisation. It is believed that this will make it easier and cheaper for UK businesses to trade with other member countries and this could be especially relevant for industries like financial services where the UK has traditionally been a leader. Some experts, however, have raised concerns about the potential negative impacts of joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, such as increased competition from lower-cost producers in the region, especially in industries such as agriculture and manufacturing. There are also concerns about the potential erosion of UK labour and environmental standards, as some member countries have weaker regulations in these areas. The decision to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a bold move by the UK, as it seeks to establish its place in the global trade arena post-Brexit. It represents a significant shift in the UK's trade policy as it moves to broaden its horizons beyond the EU and forge new partnerships with countries in the Asia-Pacific region. Only time will tell how this move will impact the UK's economy, but one thing is for sure, the global trade landscape is rapidly changing and the UK is positioning itself to be a player in this new era of trade. Seven hundred civilians killed in the last three months, almost six million internally displaced and one million refugees outside the country. We are talking about the Democratic Republic of the Congo. 
The east of the country is flooded with armed militias and it is home of one of the most pressing humanitarian crises worldwide. Recently, on March 7th, the main rebel group, M23, declared a ceasefire, which was not respected by any of the parties. Later on, the East African community, of which DR Congo is a member, agreed to a withdrawal deadline on March 30th. Last Thursday, the date on which M23 had to withdraw from all newly occupied areas in the military campaign of the last months. The requirement has not been met. This may further increase the tensions in eastern Congo, inciting a stronger engagement of not only the DRC military and UN peacekeeping troops, but also from the Eastern African Regional Force that has been recently deployed there. This joint effort of Ugandan, Kenyan and Burundian armies was crafted not to fight against rebels directly, but to occupy areas as rebels withdrew. In this context of rebel intransigence, regional leaders can decide to swift the Eastern African armies into a more enforcing and robust operation against M23. This regional element is key for the conflict. Great Lakes states are concerned with M23 to the extent that Goma, the biggest city in the affected DRC region, is a major commercial hub, and it is growingly threatened by rebel forces. For our listeners to keep up with the issue, we have to take into account that M23 is a Tutsi militia with origins in the Rwandan genocide as a spillover effect of the civil war. Although it has been dormant from for some years, the group re-emerged in 2021 with the support of the Rwandan government, this according to the DRC itself and also United Nations experts. It is based in the Kivu region, contiguous to the neighboring Rwanda. Many argue that it acts as a Rwandan proxy, helping the illegal exportation of minerals to its sponsor state and thus financing itself. This conflict takes place far away from the capital, Kinshasa, in the west of the country, which is simultaneously tackling other insurgencies in the northeast, the Islamist allied democratic forces and the rebel Kodeko, apart from other minor groups. All this puts the government in a very delicate position, which is aiming to also organize elections later on this year. Ignoring the withdrawal deadline could uh, ignite a more forceful response by both UN and East African community troops. Another possibility is that this situation can put the UN mission in a sideline position if the UN Security Council member states do not agree on increasing its robustness and reactivating the Force Intervention Group Brigade, an offensive-style unit within the Blue Helmets. Eventually, this could mean that the UN would be overshadowed by the Eastern African community, paving the way for the already agreed exit of the UN peace mission, which does not have any agreed time span. And also, it would be an African solution to an African problem, as many policymakers of the continent always preach.
The former president of the United States, Donald Trump, made history last week by being the first ever ex-president to be criminally indicted. Trump faces more than 30 counts of business fraud and is set to be extradited from his home in Florida to face trial in Manhattan Criminal Court this coming week. Something of a media frenzy has taken shape over the past week, with a maelstrom of speculation and reportage hitting airways. In right-wing circles, talking heads oscillate between being on the verge of tears at the prospect of a conviction, to being positively giddy at the apparent street cred that would be garnered from a mugshot of the former president. However, amidst the noise, there has been a worrying tenor to the attacks on the judicial system and its practitioners made by Trump and others on the right. Wading in on Truth Social, Trump, in characteristically feverish prose, warned of potential death and destruction in the event of his prosecution on the 24th of March, ahead of his rally in Waco, Texas, incidentally on the anniversary of the Waco siege, a totem for the anti-government right in America. Further to this, he released a statement on Friday riddled with inaccuracies and ad hominem attacks. One particularly worrying attack, however, was a passing reference to a well-established anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. He alleged that the real kingmaker behind the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, who was prosecuting his case, was in fact the wealthy philanthropist and staple boogeyman of the far-right conspiracist, George Soros, who happens to be Jewish. Not to be outdone, current rival for the GOP ticket turned Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, made his own reference to this conspiracy theory when he tweeted that Florida would not help in the extradition of Trump from his Mar-a-Lago estate, branding Bragg as a Soros-backed Manhattan district attorney. This week is set up to be a particularly contentious one in the unfolding culture wars in the United States. Last week, the Security Distillery published its latest analysis on developing geopolitical and security dynamics, this time covering the fraught environment around Turkey's upcoming elections, currently set for this May. I spoke with that article's author, Joel Moffat, on his latest article, High Stakes at the Horizon, Turkey's General Elections 2023. Joel, thank you for joining the show. Good evening, Chris. Pleasure to be here. So you make the case that the upcoming general elections in Turkey are the most consequential in its history, recent history, as they will define its economic development and strategic positioning within the global order. In order to arrive at that thesis, Joel, I think we should start with the key stakeholders involved. Who are the players? Absolutely, Chris. So first off, obviously, Erdogan is the current president of Turkey and has been the head of state of Turkey for the past 20 years. He is currently experiencing his most his tightest election as far as he's been the leader. And he's largely going up against a six-party coalition called the National Alliance. His party, the AK, 
AKP party or Justice and Development Party has been has had a secure hold on power since they absolutely dominated the election in 2002. So it's these two parties that really uh, have that incredibly tight contest over the next coming months. So if the party that best has the opportunity to dethrone Erdogan after his decades in power is the National Alliance, this coalition of parties, what chance do they actually have? Well, surprisingly for an opposition party in Turkey in its recent history, quite a good chance. And polling going back six months or so has made this incredibly tight uh, outcome. That is influenced heavily by a Black Swan event that I'm sure we've all heard about the incredibly destructive earthquakes that hit southern Turkey, killing nearly 50,000 people. This has completely swung any predictions out of the water, and specifically Erdogan's uh, perceived poor response to this, this, this tragedy will really give a lot of support to the National Alliance. What about Erdogan's economic policy? That has come under a lot of scrutiny even before the earthquakes occurred. How has that really really been received by the general public? And did, would that harm his re-election opportunities? Yeah, so before this earthquake, that really was his major uh, fault. And the reason many who had been staunch AKP supporters for the past 20 years really turning against him. This is largely through the history. So they, the Justice and Development Party, when it came onto the scene in 2002, completely transformed Turkish economics. Uh, the GDP growth rate around that time was enormous, was staggering, and really this created a lot of wealth within Turkey, especially in its major Western cities, Istanbul, Ankara, and Izmir. So this created a lot of trust in the party. That is starting to be eroded, especially in the last two or three years, really linked around the time COVID started. So the Turkish lira is currently uh, experiencing incredibly high inflation, could lead to hyperinflation at some point in the upcoming years. And largely, that's a result of Erdogan's domination of the Turkish Central Bank, his policies against any uh, recommendations from the major economists of Turkey is continuing to devalue the currency. And this is just destroying the savings of this middle class he effectively is seen to have created. So his economic policies are having a devastating impact on the middle class and on the lower class as well. And they already have to contend with this catastrophic national disaster. Let's say he's able to weather the storm. He's reelected. What is the future of Turkey in the Western Geostrategic Alliance if he continues to be serving as the nation's leader? So should Erdogan come out of this election still as the president and the Justice and Development Party is able to secure a majority in the parliament, he'll largely continue the democratic backsliding that has really characterized Turkey since the 2016 coup, which is considered the point in which Turkish politics completely changes. And this democratic backsliding, he will increasingly pursue it. He won't let go of his hold over the central bank. He will continue to expand the powers of the president beyond any other country in NATO. What does this mean for what the Western Geostrategic Alliance? Well, it may present increasingly risky, obviously, economic policies, which considering its 
in NATO country is particularly threatening. Furthermore, maybe Erdogan has shown more pro-Russian aspects to his policy in terms of the purchase of S-400 fighter planes, which actually the US put sanctions on Turkey after this. But realistically, a lot of the major impacts are going to be domestic. He will retain his alliance with the West because he knows his power really comes from being able to uh, ju juggle these two worlds, Russia, China, and NATO. He won't, won't change that because he knows that's where his core international power base comes from. And if the alliance, this national alliance, is able to finally dethrone him, would it be something similar in terms of their external foreign policy outlook? Or would it be, would their domestic politics really go in the opposite direction and start to decentralize a lot of this power that Erdogan has consolidated? Yes, a lot of the National Alliance's campaign is based largely on demo, uh, sorry, domestic factors. So that would be a reduction to the powers of the presidency, the reintroduction of the prime minister position, and a term limit on the president for seven years, aspects such as this. This is really what they're campaigning on. They also want to uh, diversify the media landscape of Turkey, which is one of Erdogan's major strengths in terms of his campaign, because he just dominates uh, TRT world, the major news source of Turkey. Now, in terms of the international outlook, that's a bit more difficult to predict. Remember, this is a coalition of six parties, and while they are entirely focused on this domestic uh, pursuit to bring back the powers of the presidency, their actual international foreign policy is a bit more complicated between the six parties. So largely, this is something you probably won't fully understand until the outcome in which they win. Well, Joel Moffat, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, his article is High Stakes at the Horizon, Turkey General Elections 2023, and you can read it now on the Security Distillery website. And please follow the Security Distillery on Instagram at the Security Distillery. Joel, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. It was a pleasure.